Good evening, everyone. Good to have you here on a Wednesday night, on a cool Wednesday night. I suppose it's a cold Wednesday night. That's okay. The warmth is in here. Just always reminded of an old, old song that talks about the presence of the Lord in this place and that if there's any place we want to be it's right there where the Lord is and he said I'll be among you where two or more are gathered in my name and well we're gathered in his name (laughs) just for that reason well there's a whole lot of announcements and I don't have any thought of which ones they are so you have a bulletin that's on your refrigerator, make sure you check on it this week. But I will remind the ladies about the tea and getting your tickets for that. The, 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 uh, the ladies' Christmas tea is uh, Sunday, December 11th at 5.30. And um, the um, tickets are $5 a person. You can purchase them in the office, even tonight if you'd like, or you can even do it online at calvaryep.com. I sound like a commercial, don't I? Anyway, ladies, it's a wonderful time for y'all, so hope y'all can come. Ezekiel chapter 23. <clears throat> this is not a, a, an easy chapter, but I will, um, I will preface it by saying that um, one of the very reasons why the Messiah would come as light into darkness, as it says in Isaiah chapter chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, is for this very reason that there was darkness throughout the whole land of Israel at that time. We've been talking about the sins of Judah for 20 chapters, practically 20 chapters of realizing, you know, that God is using the prophet Ezekiel and he also used the prophet Jeremiah to let the people know how far they had strayed from God because of their rebellion. How far they strayed from from the Lord because of their disobedience. But the Lord is, is going to very, be very clear, very, very uh, even to the point of graphic in this chapter. For those of you that have probably read it already, you're probably wondering how I'm going to keep this around the PG-13 level. But um, God has given his people opportunity upon opportunity to repent of their sins. But they never came as low as when they left God so far that they forgot him, left him, and loved upon other gods, loved upon other nations, and embrace their idols and their idolatry and everything that goes with it, as you'll see tonight. 
So the season that we are getting ready to celebrate, I always think it is important to remind you that, that of that passage in Isaiah 9, where it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I'm just letting you know that we're just going to look at the darkness tonight. But that's the light that will come, or that's the reason for the light to come into that darkness. That's a great part of it. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Ezekiel 23. Remember that there is just a continuous telling of these, of these things to the people by parable, parables of all kinds. We've already touched on a lot of them. And he says, the word of the Lord, or it says, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, so God's word came upon the prophet Ezekiel, saying, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed whoredoms in Egypt, or harlotry in Egypt. They committed whoredoms in their youth. There were their breasts pressed, and there they bruised the teats of their virginity. The names of them were Ahola, the elder, and Aholiba, her sister. And they were mine, and they bear sons and daughters. Thus were their names, Samaria, is Ahola and Jerusalem Aholiba. So the prophet Ezekiel is now spoken to by the Lord once again, who uses some of the most sexually graphic language found in the scriptures to make his point concerning the whole of the people and nation of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, which are Israel and Judah. There are some similarities to chapter 16 and 17, where Israel as a nation is pictured as turning away from God. However, the emphasis of those two chapters is different from the emphasis in chapter 23. In chapter 16 and 17, the importance was placed on the fact that the Jews turned away from the Lord because they trusted idols and powerful nations for their security and for their prosperity. But in chapter 23, it stresses the fact that they turned away from the Lord because they lusted after a relationship with false gods and unbelieving nations. Also, chapter 16 and 17 deal only with, with Judah, while, while this chapter covers the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Both kingdoms were guilty of spiritual adultery, turning away from the Lord and uniting themselves to false gods and pagan nations. The result, of course, was God's hand of judgment falling on both of them. So you have to understand, then, the, the, the great emphasis on, on adultery throughout the scriptures as being one of those great sins against God from the standpoint of what he gives us to be faithful with, with one another. But all of that 
in picture to the things that he is drawing among uh, his people and his nation Israel. And dealing with the issue of spiritual adultery is really what it all points to because that this is that relationship that he wants to have with his people. Where God has been faithful with his people, he wants his people to be faithful with him. So it's a, a, a very important issue and a very important point. But the Lord pictures Israel and Judah as two sisters whom he brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now it says two sisters of one mother. The mother, of course, is, is Israel as a whole in, in, in essence. And the understanding is that Israel was born actually in the country or the nation of, of Egypt when the sons of uh, when the sons of um, Jacob were there coming into the land of course Joseph was already there and all but uh, he brought them up out of the land of Egypt when he did and he commanded them to be faithful to him that was what God said to this people. You know, be faithful to me. I'm faithful to you. But they both turned away from him and followed idolatry in its most dreadful and revolting forms. Because a lot of what happens in idolatry and in the worship of idols pertains in most pagan countries and most heathen nations. When you look back at the history of all of it. There were always connections, you know, idolatry with adultery or idolatry with sexual types of sins. And we see this throughout all of the scriptures. And God is warning his people from the very beginning not to go in that route. What is quite interesting is that the adultery of these two sisters began during Israel's bondage in Egypt. So while they were in Egypt already being formed as a nation, they were already following after, they were already wanting to follow after the gods of Egypt. And they started turning away from the Lord even then and giving themselves to false God or false gods. I, w- I want you to consider something that is stated in Joshua chapter 24. Now, most of you are, are familiar with Joshua 24 when you, when you think of the statement that Joshua himself, himself makes to the, the, to the children of Israel then. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But in Joshua 24 verse 14... He says, now therefore fear the Lord, he says to the people, and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods. Notice he's already saying to them who have come out of Egypt, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. So that, that, that is not just an implication. I mean, that is a straight out, hey, put away those gods that you brought, that, you know, that, your, that your folks brought, and, and you, you, know, you continue to carry on as, as, if they, as if you inherited them. No, put them away and serve the Lord, because there's only one God to serve. There's only one God to serve. Now, when you come back to Ezekiel in chapter 20, and we studied this already, but I want you just, as a point of review, look at what it says in verses 6 through 8, where God says, In the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, then said I unto them, Cast away every man, or cast ye away every man, the abominations of his eyes. 
and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Cast ye away every man the abomination of his eyes, or the abominations of his eyes. So this is, this is actually going to take us back to the very first time that we are introduced to sin. When Eve was tempted by the serpent with the fruit of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it tells us that it was pleasant to her eyes. And, a lot, and what we need to begin to understand here is that the things that God is telling us to be careful of, to be watchful of, are all of the senses that we have physically. The senses that we have, this is why uh, the word sensuality or sense, sensual comes out of the senses that we have naturally. We see, we hear, we speak, we taste, we touch. But in fact, when you put all of those together, you could actually use them all in, in idol worship, right? I mean, let's, let's face it. What's your word? Where, you know, the, the, the tongue, the, the, the speaking aspect. Who do you worship? Who do you speak to? What you touch? Consider the sensuality today of the world. What you see. What is it that you're listening to? You know, many times, even music today is, is very sensual and it draws people to think of those particular things. Even taste. Why? Because of what is offered to idols. So it's all wrapped up into this whole thing. But he says, Cast you away every man uh, the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one. He says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that you are to look to. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So getting back to our text, the Lord gave special names now to the two sisters. He called Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahola. Or as in, in some translations, Ohola. But it comes from Ohel. The, the word Ohel means tent. Ohel is tent. O-H-E-L is tent. So Ahola means her tent. Her tent. And, and it refers to the tent that Jeroboam initially went to set up someplace other than Jerusalem. When God said, Jerusalem is where I want you to worship me, they set up their own kingdom so that they could worship whoever they wanted to worship and in whatever form they wanted to worship in the northern kingdom. So uh, her tent means it wasn't God's tent, it was her tent. It was the nation's desire. And the tent always meant what? Tabernacle or the place of worship. And when the Jews would hear the word tent, they would naturally think of the tabernacle, which was the sanctuary of worship before Solomon built the temple. Now therefore, the name Ahola would remind the Jews of the tent, the sanctuary of false worship that Jeroboam had built in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 12, in verses 25 through 33, if you'd like to read that later. But it was Jeroboam who instituted a new form of religion. Setting up gods for the people to worship. 
at new worship centers with new shrines and altars and even a new priesthood. But all of it was false. Now this is something that we today in the church need to really be aware of and discerning about. New worship centers. New ways to worship. New forms. New shrines. New altars. I think I was, I think it was on <laughs> Sunday, I think I, I, I stated the fact that it burdens my heart when I, when I see signs on churches that say we do, we worship differently or we do church differently or we do whatever differently. What's so different? Are we supposed to worship the same God? Are we to lift up and adore and, and appreciate and, and love and honor the name of Jesus Christ our Lord? What, what do we do differently? This is something we have to pay attention to. This is why Paul said that one of the gifts of the Spirit is the discerning of spirits. Who are we really worshiping? But they had turned the northern kingdom of Israel and you know, every one of their kings, by the way, was, was an evil king. There wasn't, a good, there wasn't a good king in the northern kingdom. They had turned away from the true God and given themselves to false gods. Now the second sister, the first sister is called the elder sister. <clears throat> the second sister is called Achiloba, which means my tent is in her. As God is saying, my tent is there. So therefore, what is that saying? Well, we're talking about Jerusalem. Because that's where he wanted his tent to be. That's where he wanted his tabernacle to be. That is where the temple then would be built. And so it's a clear reference to the fact that God had chosen Jerusalem as the city where his temple was to be built. Now Jerusalem was the place where the Lord would manifest his presence and make himself known throughout the world. And yes, not just in Israel, but throughout the world. What is the epicenter of the world today? Is it Washington, D.C.? Is it Moscow? Or is it Jerusalem? It's Jerusalem. It always has been and it always will be. In fact, when Jesus comes in his second coming to set up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, he doesn't go to Rome. Just want to let you know that. Because some people, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you, some people think that's where he's going. No, he's going to Israel. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the eastern gate and he's going to break it wide open. And then he's going to enter in with his Kohen, his priest. And then he's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years in Jerusalem on the throne of David. And then after the thousand years, of course, he then will judge and uh, destroy Satan and his minions and then set up the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell. That's the reason why Jerusalem is so significant in the world today and in world history today. And it is also significant what we do as nations concerning Israel and God's people there now. Because they're there now. I've been there enough times to know that they're there. They're not hiding. They're really there. 
and the Temple Mount is there. And even though there's all kinds of political and, and uh, socio-political problems going on with, with who runs what and who owns what and who is over what, God knows who it is. That's why he brought his people back into the land and it's made everybody in the, in the Middle East really upset. But that's okay. God is in control. So, as the book of Ezekiel is so profoundly recorded, <clears throat> both prophetically and historically, the citizens of Jerusalem had also committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. Now, we saw that last time. God is judging Judah and Jerusalem through the arm of the Babylonians. In other words, he's using the Babylonians <clears throat> excuse me, to judge them. <clears throat> so they were just as guilty as those in the northern kingdom of turning away from the true God and going after false gods. Why would God want to destroy Judah, who had good kings and bad kings, but the bad kings had already influenced so much of the people to turn away from God that now they had fallen into that trap of following after idols. And as we're going to learn in a greater way. So the Lord had warned against the spiritual adultery before in Jerusalem, uh, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. Now remember that Jeremiah was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, to the southern kingdom. Don't forget that the northern kingdom, Assyria, I mean, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom had already been uh, taken over by Assyria and carried off into captivity in Assyria. The same thing was going to happen to Judah through the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And then in Jeremiah 15, verse 6, it says, Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord, thou art gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary, I am weary with repenting. <laughs> In other words, this is going to be a time when you know, your, your repenting is going to have to stop. It's just going to stop. He has been helping them, but at, at some point, see, what's, what's going to happen is they're going to stop repenting. God's weary of it because, you know, God is merciful. But he's also just. And he's also right and righteous. So there comes a time when God knows that the people are not going to turn and therefore he brings judgment. Consider though that there are warnings against all the, even spiritual adultery. Uh, there's warning in the New Testament as well to the church, to the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, consider in verses 18 through 20 what Paul says to Timothy. And by the way, it's very interesting that Paul continues to push these things, or not so much push, but, but, but really emphasize these things to Timothy, who is a pastor, in, and eventually would be the pastor in the church of Ephesus. And he says, this charge, I, uh, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, verse 18, uh, according to the prophecies which went be, before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. What is he saying to the church? Listen, we're in warfare every day as believers in Jesus Christ. 
And we're to be good soldiers for the cause of Christ each and every day of our lives. And he says in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. So he even mentions names. He mentions names to to Timothy. He says, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? I have delivered unto Satan. What he means by that is, he did, you know, he doesn't say, hey, I'd like, like you a couple of guys to meet somebody I, I know. No, no, he, he's just saying, I've delivered them. In other words, I've given them over. They have chosen to blaspheme the Lord. They've chosen to blaspheme Jesus for whatever reason. So I've, I've given them over Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, there are things that we ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ need to learn every day. You know, sometimes we, we drift. If we're, not staying, if we're not staying focused on the word of God, and if we're not staying uh, grounded in the word of God, if we're not staying in prayer, if we're not staying where God wants us to be, if we're not even in fellowship, it burdens my heart sometimes when I think that some people just like to go here and there because they want to hear this and they want to hear that, but they're not grounded someplace where God wants them to be so that they can be fed the word of God and shepherd it as, as God has given some of us the, the, the calling to do is to feed the flock of God, the word of God. And they go here and there and they just, you know, they're not doing, they're not doing what the word of God says. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to be living stones. Now, the, the church is made up of, certainly of, 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 of all of us. We are the church. It's not the building, the chairs, and all of that. The, the, the church are the people who truly believe in Jesus Christ. But we are called to be a part of the church, to be living stones built up uh, and edifying, you know, the Lord God somewhere. The, the, the scriptures call us living stones. Charles Spurgeon once said that, those who don't like to be a part of the church are called uh, just bricks. You know, they're dead, dead bricks on the road. They're not, they're, not, they're not put into the church. Besides, bricks are made by men. Stones made by God. There's a big difference. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 where it says in verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, speaking of our time even today, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Departing from the faith. Been where the faith is and has said goodbye. That sounds to me like departing, right? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And we're not talking about doctrines of devils that make people want to wear, you know, horns on their head and tails and carry pitchforks. Doctrines of devils when it comes right down to it, is anything that will take you away from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God. Any doctrine that is not in the word of God is a doctrine of the devil. And the spirits that are seducing, people are not being discerning about. And they're listening to all kinds of other things. If something sounds spiritual, don't forget, something can be spiritual and then you have to add the last few uh, the last few letters spiritualistic. Be careful with that. 
That's what the New Age movement does inside the church, uh, churches today. Where some people say, and I, you, know, I, you know, this may offend you, I don't know if it will or not, but uh, Christian yoga, ever heard of that? Just as a, an example, Christian yoga. There, there's no, that's an oxymoron. Yoga is a Hindu practice. Hindu practice. How do you turn a Hindu practice into something Christian? You don't. There's light and there's darkness. So we have to be careful about these things. Go to the next book, uh, 2 Timothy, the second letter, which is Paul's last letter written. And he writes it to Timothy and he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says, I charge thee therefore before God. And remember, he's speaking to, to Timothy, but he's also speaking to us. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick or the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He says, preach the word. Be instant or ready in season and out of season. Be ready when, when you need to be and be ready when you do, you're not sure that you need to be. But you be ready anyway. Always. How do you be ready out of season if you're not ready in season? And then he says, reprove. Rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, there's a way to let somebody know that they're going the wrong way. We're to do it in love, but we're also to do it very faithfully, and we're also to do it very, very strongly. I mean, you know, but, but we have to also remember that that could be you and me. Because we've been there. We've gone off the beaten path. We've done things, and, and praise the Lord for the people that God has sent us to, to bring us back into line with, with the Lord. When they do it gently, and when they do it humbly, because they know that even they themselves, just like you and I. Read Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. You know, that we, we need to, to realize that uh, those who are fallen can be very much us the next time. For the time will come, he says, that when they will not endure sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? It's just sound teaching that comes from the word of God. But after their own lusts, notice their own lusts. What, what have we been talking about with, uh, with uh, uh, Israel and Judah? How they fell from God because of their own lusts. And this is speaking to the church. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They don't want to hear the teachers that are teaching the word of God and teaching the truth. They'd rather hear somebody that makes them feel good. So they go to Dr. Feelgood at the, you know, the big, uh, what they call a campus now. You know, we go, oh, I have a campus. No, no, no. no. How about a place where we can worship God in a sanctuary? What's, what's with the campus bit? I don't know. Change the name. See, we're changing the words about where we, you know, where we worship the Lord. Folks, we are to worship God every day. When we get up in the morning, when we get on our knees, when we pray, when we read the word of God, that's church, man. Because you're the church. They have itching ears. They, they don't want to hear what I'm saying. What are you doing in the book of Ezekiel, man? Let's go find something really nice and sweet. Well, yeah, there's a lot of good and nice stuff, you know, in the scriptures. But you can't 
take it out of, of the whole of the Bible. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the whole word of God. That's the full counsel of God. Which Paul said, I, I, you know, with tears, I made sure that I, I did not forsake in giving you the whole counsel of God, which is God's word. In verse 4, it says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. It's really a fable to think that what we have in this life, you know, what we can acquire, what we can achieve, what we can, you know, accomplish in this life is, is really the, our goal to let people know how powerful our God is. No, I'll tell you what's powerful. When he changes a life, from death to life. When he takes someone out of darkness and puts them into light. When he takes somebody out of despair and shows them his love that becomes their greatest possession. The love of God is the greatest possession any of us can have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and me. I don't know where we get to sing about what we have is what's important. Jesus said, listen, we should be laying up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy. Where neither thieves can break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's where your heart is. As we move on into our text, the Lord speaks... First, about Samaria and the northern kingdom. Let's look at verse 5. I bet you thought we'd never get to verse 5. We're there. And Ahola played the harlot when she was mine. And she doted on her lovers. You know, the word dote is kind of an interesting thing. You know, we have, we have doting fathers, you know, that, that love their children or love their grandchildren. So we use that word in, in a sense, but... It's interesting that in the Hebrew, the word dote or doting uh, is, is actually breathing centrally. It just means about, you know, breathing centrally over what, what they see. It's a, it's a heavy-duty word there, so that's why I wanted to mention it right away. Uh, because in the modern vernacular, doting is, is kind of like really cute to see, you know, a father that's proud of his young daughter or granddaughter or son or, you know, a grandson. You know, a doting father. Yeah, that's 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 nice when it comes to familiar, uh, but this this is a very heavy duty word in the Hebrew. It, it just means you know, kind of breathing sensuously. Uh, she doted on her lovers, uh, on the Assyrians, her neighbors, which were clothed with blue captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses. Thus, she committed her whoredoms with them. The point is that they were, there, was, there was an attraction to this nation, to these people, to their ways, to their gods. They committed her whoredoms with them, with all them that were the chosen men of Assyria, and with all on whom she doted, with all their idols she defiled herself. Speaking of Samaria and, of course, the northern kingdom. Neither left she her whoredoms brought from Egypt. She didn't leave as God had said, cast away or get rid of. For in her youth they lay with her 
And they bruised the breasts of her virginity and poured their whoredom upon her. Which, which is a description. That, I mean, this is, this is a very graphic description of, you know, even, even to the point of, of, of abuse and rape. It's graphic, isn't it? Wherefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians upon whom she doted. These discovered her nakedness. How much did the children of Israel know from the very beginning how God abhorred uh, nakedness for sexual or sensual reasons? These discovered her nakedness. They took her sons and her daughters and slew her with a sword. And she became famous among women. By the way, the word famous there literally means infamous. Famous in the fact that there's, there's some reputation or some fame for what she did, but it's really infamy, infamous. She became famous among women, for they had executed judgment upon her. The sin of the northern kingdom of Israel was her alliance with the Assyrians, even, even worshiping the same gods. And, and the evidence actually speaks for itself. Ar- archaeologists have discovered a black obelisk dating back to 841 B.C. from the reign of Shalmaneser, who was, uh, Shalmaneser III, who was the king of, uh, of Assyria. And, and written on this obelisk, which is just a big, tall stone with all kinds of etchings on it, that they're carved etchings and pictures, and written on this obelisk is the name Jehu or Yehu, son of Omri. Who was actually a king of the northern kingdom. And it pictures Yehu and his servants bowing down to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. Now why would he do that? Why would he bow down to the king of Assyria? It was because the, because the Syrians, now there's two groups. There's the Syrians and there's the Assyrians or Assyrians. They weren't really the same. Syrians were the Arameans and, and, and so they, they were a different nation and, and all. And the Syrians, who are really the, the forerunners to the Syrians of today, but the Syrians were making advances into the northern kingdom of Israel and to try to stop this from continuing, Yehu uh, submitted himself to Assyria as a vassal king. In other words, a subservient king, a king who would rule his people but under the kingdom of Assyria, under the rule of Shalmaneser. Uh, But it wasn't just in Yehu's time, but even with his descendants, there were two other kings of the northern kingdom, Menachem and, and, and Hoshea. And if we'll go to the book of Hosea, which is very similar to the Hosea, but Hosea is the king and Hosea is the prophet. And if you turn to Hosea chapter 8, okay, because you're all sitting here like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, just turn there and we'll get, we'll get to it. <laughs> all right. Hosea chapter 8, as you're turning to Hosea, remember that Hosea was a prophet to whom the Lord told to go marry a prostitute. Y'all remember that? the very beginning. For what reason? To kind of give the picture of what Israel was doing in their harlotry, in their whoredoms. 
So you can read that in the early part of, uh, in the first couple of chapters of, of Hosea. But now in Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Now, by the way, that's the whole chapter. The reason I'm going to read this whole chapter to you right now is because of every tie that we've already touched upon in, in Ezekiel 23 that we see in this particular chapter. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Speaking of the king of Assyria who is going to come and take Israel into captivity. That is the northern kingdom of Israel whose capital was Samaria, Ahola. Remember that. Verse 2, Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that they are thinking and they're worshiping of the other idols, that that's their, their God now. Much like when, when the children of Israel in the wilderness, when they were worried that, uh, that Moses wasn't going to come back down because he might have died up in, the, up in, in, in Mount Sinai with the Lord. He says, well, maybe Moses is dead up there. Aaron, who was Moses' brother, was told by the people, listen, you make us a golden calf so we can worship God. They're thinking, well, well, make us the golden calf. That's going to be God. You know, that's our representation of God. And therefore, idol worship began, in, at least uh, uh, there in, in, in the mount uh, uh, called Sinai. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. Well, they, what is the thing that is good? They've cast off God himself. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. What, is the, what have we been dealing with with, with the Judah now in, in the book of Ezekiel? All the very same things. Idol worship. Listening to false prophets, following the false leaders of Israel. They're false when they, once they turn from, from God, if they're in the royal line and they turn from God, they're false. Thy calf, verse 5, thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also. The workman made it, therefore it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. The gods that you're making are not going to last. There's only one God that lasts. And notice verse 7. One of, one of the great verses of scripture when it comes to the consequences of those who follow after their own hearts and after their own gods. For they have sown the wind. And they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stock, but the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. The consequences of, of disobedience to God. You sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And then in verse 8 it says, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. They're going to be a vessel, but it's, it's not going to be a, a pleasurable thing. Listen, as, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are vessels 
And, and the scriptures tell us that we are to be vessels of righteousness. We're to be vessels of holiness. That God can use us. So therefore we need to be vessels that are humble before God. We humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And he shall exalt us in due season. The word says. For they are gone up to Assyria a wild ass alone by himself. A wild donkey. Stubborn, right? Donkeys go off by themselves. They, you know, they, you pull them this way, they go this way, right? They, they don't, they don't like to listen to anybody. Ephraim hath hired lovers. By the way, Ephraim is is a is a term that is used for the northern kingdom of Israel. Yea, though they have hired among the nations. Now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes, because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin. What what have we been dealing with in Ezekiel? But that they have been building altars of worship, of idolatry to other gods and not to the God of Israel. Altars shall be unto him to sin. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. I think that's the saddest thing to say about the things that God has written for his people, which is his word. And that we take his word and we don't read it, we don't pay attention to it, we don't honor it, and we don't believe it. Or at least those who who do that, it's counted as a strange thing. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Now there's a sense that that's both actual and spiritual. Because Egypt is a type of the world. Where did their whoredom really begin? The whole point of what we've been reading at the beginning of Ezekiel 23 is that their, their, boredom, their whoredom began in Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and buildeth temples. And Judah hath multiplied fenced cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. And notice that Judah is now mentioned there as well, which is where we're going here in just a moment. So not only did Yehu side with the Assyrians, but Menachem paid tribute to them. You can read that in 2 Kings chapter 15. Uh, And Hosea paid tribute to the Assyrians, which is recorded in 2 Kings 17. So remember those two chapters as part of your homework to read about what's happening. 2 Kings 15 and 2 Kings 17. Hosea tried to break his alliance with Assyria by looking to Egypt for help. So remember I said that it's an actual thing as well as a spiritual thing that they're going to go back to Egypt. Why? Because that's what one of these kings did. Went back to Egypt. He tried to, he tried to break his alliance with Assyria by going to Egypt for help. But Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, found out and he put down that rebellion to the point of taking the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 721 B.C. So a good while before it, uh, Judah is taken into captivity by, by Nebuchadnezzar, the northern kingdom has already 
been taken into captivity. What has happened is that Israel's lover became her slayer. That's the whole point. If you remember anything, Israel's lover, because, you know, the whole text here and the whole context of the text has to do with the sensualness of their love for the, for the idols of for the idols of Israel, or I should say the idols of Assyria. Instead of trusting in the Lord, they trusted in that which, they, which could not help, but only hurt them as they found out. So that was uh, quite a powerful lesson uh, for her little sister, the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, Aholibah is, is now the next up as far as what we're going to look at. The question is, did Judah learn a lesson from her sister? Let's look at verse 11 now of Ezekiel 23. And when her sister Aholibah saw this, in other words, what had happened to Israel by Assyria, she was more corrupt in her inordinate love than she. Aholibah was more corrupt in her inordinate love than Aholah. And in her whoredoms, more than her sister in her, in her whoredoms. She became worse. The southern kingdom which had good kings and bad kings, would become worse than the kingdom that had no good kings at all. I mean, this just simply amazes me. Not only did they not learn the lesson, but Jerusalem transgressed even more than Samaria and had become more wicked than the most wicked. Now, how does that happen? Well, let's read on. Verse 12. She doted, there's that word again, she doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains, and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men, and now you're, th- you, you know, here's, are you getting the picture of what, what, what the Lord is, is doing with, with these images? Using these, these sensual and graphic descriptions, And by the way, it, is, it, it was actually being done, going back to Ezekiel and the people in, uh, that were already in captivity in Babylon. The whole idea by him speaking this way was doing what? It was arousing the people to listen. I find that really interesting that God would use that to, to get people, whoa, what did he just say? But they're listening. Then I saw that she was defiled, that they took both one way, and that she increased her whoredoms. For when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with girdles upon their loins, exceeding in dyed attire upon their heads, all of them princes to look to after the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity, Man's like, whoa. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's, a, it's a central picture of what was going on inside of the heart and mind of the, of the people of Judah. 
And as soon as she saw them with her eyes, she doted upon them, the sensual breathing thing, and sent messengers unto them into Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom. And she was polluted with them, and her mind was alienated from them. So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. And then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. So instead of trusting in the Lord, Jerusalem also trusted in the Assyrians for help. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 16 that the Syrians, not the Assyrians, but the Syrians, along with Israel, came against Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah. So the king sent word to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, asking for help. Ahaz asking help of the Assyrians. By doing this, they became a vassal to the Assyrians. What is a vassal but a a subjugated king under, you know, under the rule of another king, uh, and, and, and not under the rule of God, by the way. And then under the reign of Hezekiah, now Hezekiah comes in and he's a good king. God wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. In one night. Freeing them from the oppression of the Assyrians as they turned to the Lord. There are times when God, you know, says, I've had enough, okay? Here's a good king, here's Hezekiah. Hezekiah rises up and he goes and he, and he destroys and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And then Josiah, who was an, also a good king in the southern kingdom, trying to stop an alliance between Egypt and Assyria, was killed in battle and the Egyptians would take control. And that lasted until the fourth year of Jehoiakim, who turned to Babylon for help. And when the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Karshemish, the southern kingdom of Judah was now vassal to Babylon. That's how all that came about. And they were even worse. The Babylonians were worse than the Egyptians and the Assyrians, if that can even be possible. But they were. The Babylonians were worse. Worse in their in their worship of idols, worse in their in their in their uh, sensuality and and, and in their uh, you know the sexualness of, of their religion and all and or the you know the gods that they worshipped and all, they were worse. And as they try to escape from the from this oppression, it only brought about the nation of Judah going into captivity in 586, which was what we've been talking about since Ezekiel chapter one. And from the very beginning of this study of this, uh, of this book. Verse, uh, let's go to verse 19 and, and let's see if we can get down to verse 21. And yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling to remembrance the days of her youth wherein she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. So there again is a reference to the fact that where it began was in the very place where the nation actually was, was, uh, uh, was raised. Uh, Israel was born, as it were, in Egypt. For she doted upon their paramours, their lovers, whose flesh is as the flesh of asses, donkeys, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. And this, we're, we're not going to work on that one. 
But thus thou callest to remembrance the lewdness of thy youth in bruising uh, thy teats by the Egyptians for the peps of thy youth. Egypt was a place of bondage that God delivered her from. But because of her sin, she once again found herself in bondage. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we can be no different from them in this respect. That God has freed us from sin. And we are no longer to be in bondage to it. We know that from the scriptures. And yet, if and when we give in and feed the monster called sin, it will grow until you find yourself in bondage once again to it. Now I want you to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, in verses 34 to 36. Because Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now, in this regard, what he's saying is, Whoever committeth sin willfully, willfully, with a willful heart, is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. And if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The servant doesn't abide in the house forever in the sense of as being a servant. In fact, we ourselves, when we came to Christ, are now bond servants bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which means a bond servant, one who is free but chooses to stay under the master's care. What a douloi or doulos did when, when he came to Christ, or actually... Uh, when he was set free, because there was a time when, when the slaves or the servants of people were, were set free after a certain time. And this was in the law. But the servant says, but, you know, I have such a good master and I don't want to leave this household. And, and he could stay and, and serve the rest of his life. They would take that servant and they would take him to the doorpost of the house and they would put his ear on the doorpost. And with an awl, they would they would put a, a hole in his, in his earlobe, and then they would put a golden ring in his ear, signifying that he is now a bond servant, free, but chooses to be a servant of his master. This is why we are called bond servants of Jesus Christ. We've been set free from sin, and now we choose to be a servant of the master. He calls us more than servants. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he even went to the cross. You're no longer servants. You're, you're my friends. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 6, Paul talks about this same freedom, but in this manner. He says in, in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, crucified with Christ. The earlier part of this chapter, of course, speaks about baptism and what baptism represents. When we are baptized, you know, we, we're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So notice again the terminology of servants. We either serve sin or we serve the master. We're not to serve both. So for he that is dead is free from sin. So we are dead in Christ. We, we are put into the waters of baptism as a symbol of our dying to ourselves and dying to sin and, and then being raised out of the water in newness of life. Now we are free from sin because the sin has been buried, but we are made alive in Christ. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Or maybe I've skipped one. Let's go back to verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now what are we to do? We're to live unto God. Not live unto ourselves. Now how can we be set free from sin and then say, okay, well thank you Lord for setting me free from sin. Now I'm going to go and do whatever I want to do. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, does it? Likewise, reckon ye yourselves also, or reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. By the way, as believers, we, we still have a body, right? You know, pinch yourselves, just make sure you're, you're still a body. You, you know, okay. You got a body. And guess what? It, it's still mortal. It can die. It's subject to the laws of, of, the, of, of, of you know, the scientific laws of, of uh, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's wearing out. You know, we're, we're, uh, anybody getting younger? I think we're all getting older. Y'all understand how all that works, right? So our bodies are mortal, but who we are inside in Christ is alive because our spirits now are made alive by Jesus Christ. And we are in Christ in that manner. These bodies will die. And even if we get raptured, if we get raptured, these bodies, I don't know whether, you know, we're going to have a new body, but we're, we're going to, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. The dead in Christ could be, you know, in a box, or they could be, uh, you know, in ashes on the, on, the, on the sea or whatever, but somehow God is going to raise the dead in Christ, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm, 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 I can't wait. Just even just to see how all that's going to happen, but of course it's more than that. It's, it's getting out of here. That's why Paul said, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's why it says at the end of the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world's getting, it's not getting better. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. See, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf on behalf of those who believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Think about the beauty of that. That's why, that's why the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light.
This was darkness that we were looking at. And we're only halfway through the chapter. There's still a little bit more to go. But the blessing is, we have a God that loved you. We have a God that loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why we're here tonight. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. And we want to thank him for, this, for the salvation that he's given us through Jesus. And we can do that here. We can do that every day, wherever we are, whatever we do. But let's yield ourselves. Not as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But let's yield ourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Folks, you're alive from the dead if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus as it says in Romans chapter 10 and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you shall be saved. But, you're, but now you're changed. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. You know why? Baptism doesn't save you. But it gives you the opportunity to say, this is what Christ has done for me. And I want to follow him into the water so I can show everybody I'm dead to sin. And when I come out of the water, I'm alive to Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay. That was a tough first part of that chapter. I didn't... I didn't know what else was going to come up there. Well, I did. I, I knew. But that's, that's the nature. You see, that's the nature of the world today. You know, the sensualities, I mean, that's, that's a big deal in the world. That's a big deal. What's, what's a bigger deal in heaven? The blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Lord looks on. Is the blood of Jesus Christ on your life today? Because you believe what Christ has done to die on your, on your behalf, that he's cleansed you from his sins. Or he's cleansed you from your sins and given you a new heart and a new life. So think about that. And you know what? If it's a matter of just kind of being reminded of that, good. Be reminded. <laughs> he loves you. And then be reminded every day that God loves you even more.